You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Push the button, Kirk. I pushed push the button. the button. We're not messing around today, Bracken. We got a we got a tight window in which to give the people what they need to hear today, don't we? We do. We have a tight window, and we've got some lives to live. Sure do, sure do. What do you got going on that's so important? Well, we got house projects going, but we have one going right now that's time sensitive, and I didn't realize we were getting the tool needed to do that right now, and so the tools arrive, and I got to get it done. That makes sense. I can get yeah. on board with that. Yeah. And you've got you've got some plans? Uh no. <laughs> no. I mean I my my uh, we're recording on Friday. My Fridays are the lightest day of the week. So we're just cramming this in so you can get that home project done. I didn't know if you had a big workout or I don't know, no. a boot to get fitted for. Uh, don't remind me. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. So what do we um I know we like to banter usually, but uh what what do we decide upon today to chat about, Brackenstein? We've been talking about this topic for six months, maybe four months, five months, saying, you know, as soon as races get closer, we'll hit this topic. Races aren't getting closer, and yet they kind of are with all these virtual challenges coming up. And so it's finally time. Enough people have asked. It is this incredibly misunderstood topic, and there's a lot of mysticism around this. You didn't say what the topic is yet. I was going to let you do it. Oh, you were? Thank you. We're talking about the taper week, folks. And maybe we'll talk a little about deload weeks as well. But we keep pushing this thing off. We've been meaning to talk about it. And I have a few athletes, and I know you do as well, Bracken, that have either virtual marathons coming up or they're setting and attempting FKTs. Now, people have finally settled in to like their schedule and goals for the fall, have picked things to go for, and I think warrant true tapers. And most people that are training hard are going to do some sort of big effort in the next few months that warrants, I don't know, us chatting about it. So that's why yeah. we're doing it today. I think the first thing, the most important thing to do is discuss the difference between a taper and a peak because yeah. they get used interchangeably and it's kind of like the word tempo and threshold. They don't necessarily mean the same thing, but one can be part of the other, but the other doesn't guarantee it's part of the first. True. So you can tempo without running at threshold. But if you're running at threshold, usually that's a tempo run, right? We've kind of discussed that in the past. You can taper without peaking. But when you peak, there's some sort of taper involved. Well, we are talking mostly about tapering. Right. But I think we need to get that out in the open that there are two totally different concepts that people use at the same time. Correct. You, you might have the two athletes who work under the same coach and one's like, yeah, I'm tapering for this week. And the other one's, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm peaking, though. Don't worry, I'm peaking. Well, why don't you, because you want to talk about that and differentiate the two right away, why don't you just give us the elevator speech on both if okay. you can, and then we'll dive into it more. But Peaking is arriving at, at race day or, I mean, forget, forget races. Peaking is hitting your highest level of fitness with your lowest accompanying level of fatigue. Yes. And that's all that means being at your absolute zenith of your fitness and as rested as possible so that you can use as much of that. Yep. And so a true peak can only happen a few times per year because it takes a big build and it takes a proper recovery so that your fatigue drops and your overall fitness spikes where yep. tapering is simply how we talk about deloading or tapering. It's recovering from the work that you've put in. And we are going to talk about that more than we're going to talk about peaking. I do want to talk about peaking a bit, but the emphasis is on deload weeks, recovery weeks, and tapering. Yeah. And if you run like a regular season schedule, there's not really time uh, to peak for every single race. Nope. It truly is tapers that we're using every four or four to six weeks into our races. Peaking is a tough thing to do. And just 
for perspective, I peaked one time and attempted to peak one time all of 2019. And that was for Spartan Race World Championships in Lake Tahoe, where I thought my fitness came up, my fatigue went down, and you tried to hit it all on the right day. And that was a three-week process. Yeah. You know, that we're not necessarily talking about a three-week process with the taper. We could, but peaking is a longer, drawn-out period of time where a taper uh, can look different for a lot of people, but it can potentially be a shorter period of time as well, only because you can't sacrifice that much training or take that much rest because you know in another four weeks after this current race, you have another one. And that peaking, if you do that too often, is going to actually detriment future performance. Yeah. Peaking and tapering are defined by their definitions, <laughs> as, as idiotic as that sounds. If you think about a peak, it comes to a sharp point. But tapering just kind of, it, it comes in at the end. You just kind of bring it in a little bit towards the end. If something tapers off, you just pull it in closer to the midline, where a peak comes to a very sharp point. And we, we only have a few people in this sport of obstacle course racing or in the general running public who would peak for a major race each year. Killian did it last year. Mm -hmm. um, he did it well. He did it very well. You did it. You did it well. Most people race so often that they just taper more often than not. So peaking takes a lot of practice. It takes a little bit of science. It takes a little bit of luck and trial and error to get to the point. And you have to really be tracking your numbers and training. And you have to trust that your fitness will still be there. The mental side of peaking or tapering is probably one of the hardest as well. Yes, but tapering, what we'd like to talk about, the simplest one we talk about at the base level is a deload week. A deload week is a term we throw around all the time. And that simply means you back off from either your volume, your intensity, or both for a week. You could take two deload weeks, but just to give your body a chance to rest, recover, and rejuvenate before you move back up in training again. Yeah, the deload week is really the time that your body can finally soak up the training that you have been doing. Uh, you know, the, the glorification of just pounding miles and miles and workouts and workouts is great. That does build fitness, but it only builds fitness once you give your body a chance to soak up that hard work. And you cannot soak up the hard work if you're continually working hard. You do need to, to rest. And the deload week is, is huge uh, for that. I plan one in every three weeks usually, sometimes every four, which means like two or three high weeks of volume and intensity, followed by one low week of lower volume. Still with intensity for me, but just scaled back the volume of that intensity as well. I cut mileage by up to 40% that week, which is significant. Uh, I prefer a heavy deload week. I know small amount of stimulus is going to help keep all my fitness and soak up all of my gains. And uh, something we chatted about in our last Q&A is how you should feel after a deload week, for example. And a deload week is something where people think, oh, I'm deloading. I'm going to feel fantastic. It doesn't always work that way. That deload week is going to pay dividends in the future. You may not feel instantly recovered during deload week. It may take a little while, the end of the first, the end of the deload week or the following week before you start to feel those effects. Um, and that's just a common misconception I see my athletes constantly saying. It's like, I'm in the middle of deload week and my legs are still heavy. Well, that's because you still haven't, you haven't recovered fully yet. And also our bodies are used to routines. They're used to repetition. And when we get out of that routine slightly, even if you're keeping your same routine, but you're lowering volume or lowering intensity, you kind of get the stale dull feeling if you are used to something different. So you might be resting and recovering, but again, sometimes our bodies or our workouts lie to us. During a deload week or a taper and even a peak, less in peaking, more in tapering and deloads, your body will lie to you and you'll feel like crap until it needs to be used intensely and then suddenly you you just nail a workout better than you've nailed it or a race and that is why i really like people to taper or to to deload their week if they don't do it normally before races we do it a week before a time trial yes so you get that awful feeling out of the way you get to say I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to deload this week. And then on Saturday, I'm going to go out and hammer confidently, even if I don't feel confident. And then that shows you what you can actually do when you're recovered, but feeling kind of sluggish. Yep. I agree. How many of you have been out there doing like your, your run before race day and you're like, dang, my legs are heavy. Like tomorrow's going to be a bad day. 
And then you go out and have one of the best races you've ever had. In fact, most of my best races follow a Friday sluggish shakeout run thinking like, dang, like, where am I really at? That's kind of how it works. And the mentality behind that deload week is suddenly you're like, ah, it's deload week. I can relax. And oh, thank God, I don't have to run as much. And I don't know why, but our brains sort of like to tease us in thinking that we're suddenly going to also feel fresh and good instantaneously. Um, and you just have to learn that that's not the case and accept that the legs are going to feel just like they did on mon- do on Monday as they did the Monday before when you were training heavy. Because again, you're not, you're not uh, deloaded yet fully. So um, I find the biggest benefit to a deload week to come the week after the deload week is where my legs will start popping, freshen up. I'm back in my training routine. That, that rest has sunk in and is finally coming through in my training, but it doesn't always happen the current week of the deload. Yeah. I kind of look at it like a deep tissue massage. While you're doing it, it is not restful. It is not pleasant and it actually feels worrisome. And for a day or two afterwards, you can't really do what you normally would do. And mm. then the effects hit you. That's really what you're going. It, it's not physiologically what you're going through during a deload week. It's the opposite because deep tissue massages are invasive and damaging to an extent, but in a healthy way that your body adapts to. Deload weeks aren't like that physiologically. They're like that psychologically, where we go through this unpleasant experience that we know is supposed to be good for us, but it doesn't really hit us until afterwards how good it was. Mm-hmm. It's definitely true. So. If we were to talk about like why or when someone should deload week, I want to start with deload, then go to taper, and then we can just talk about peaking. I think that progression makes sense. When you suggest a deload week, do you throw it off the cuff when you're feeling fatigued? Do you plan them into your program? And why don't you walk through a bit of what a deload week would look like for you when you're high in high training volume, and then I'll kind of do the same. So when do you put them in? I do different for me than I do for athletes that I don't know very well. My coaching philosophy is to always err on the side of injuries or setbacks. And so I schedule deload weeks every third to fourth week, like clockwork, to avoid too much cumulative fatigue. Now, I know my body very well, or at least I did until (laughs) I had to start training again and realized I don't trust my fatigue levels anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in in the middle of a big block, I have a just a floating deload week waiting to be plugged in. And I wait until I hit my symptoms of needing a deload week. What are your symptoms? When I get to a Sunday and I start thinking, I'm not ready to start next week. That's when I hit a deload week. When I get to Saturday, I finish my big workout and I think I'm not going to be able to do next week. I can't be recovered. And then by the end of Sunday, I'm like, all right, I can get through another week. I'm usually pretty good. But when I go to bed Sunday, knowing I'm no better off today than I was yesterday. That's generally when I do a deload week. And I assume there was would have been some triggers in that Saturday workout as well, where you're like, I'm just not all there today. Yeah, usually the in-between runs start getting consistently worse. I can still usually hit my quality days, but every in-between run starts getting to the point where, man, I'm just living day to day here trying to get by. That's why, because like like you said, our recovery runs usually lie to us, but then I feel a little better on my easy days. And then I feel like a rock star on a lot of my quality days because I really take my recovery seriously. But when when it tips and I feel like a rock star on very few days and I feel like crap most days, that's when I deload. I also want to bring up that the body holds on to its fitness much better than we believe it does physiologically. And so like you'd mentioned, and I had mentioned like the psychological aspect is really kind of a heavy hitter when you're doing a deload or a taper. Um, there is a great episode on a podcast called the science of ultra, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I pick and choose the episodes I listen to cause they can be a little dry. However, uh, one of the early episodes, like one of their first 10 episodes is on tapering and studying like the physiological effects of a taper and and what it actually does to the body. And it's a brilliant episode that I suggest you listen to. It, and it tells you like, you can maintain pretty much all of your fitness on very little work for up to like three weeks. Let's say you were running 80 miles a week and two quality workouts a week and you drop down to 20 miles a week. That's only a quarter of your volume. Yet physiologically, if you're doing the right workouts, in between, or even easy running, the science shows you're maintaining almost all of your efficiency and your physiological adaptation you've worked hard for. 
So don't be afraid to take the point of that is, is one, listen to that episode because it's a good one. Two, don't be afraid to like actually really deload, replace a couple of runs with a bike, for example, shorten a couple reps on your Tuesday interval session, and then don't do that extended long run on Saturday. You can, you can back the throttle off on all ends and you're going to be just fine. In fact, you're probably going to be better for it. So uh, if you're having trouble with that, like that really backing off the throttle and it's messing with you mentally, um, trust me when I say like, you're going to be okay, you'll probably be better off. And listen to that episode I mentioned, you, you'll be glad you did. Now, when, when I deload, I, I, I call it a deload when it's in the middle of a training cycle. I call it a taper when it's leading into something important. So I, I, I throw on a deload whenever I need it. I throw a taper whenever I need to race. And the only difference there for me is the purposeful workouts. During a deload, I will skip my quality that week if I really need to deload, or I will change it down from, let's say, 8 by 1,000 down to 6 by 1,000. Mm-hmm. Or I'll keep eight by eight hundred rather than eight by thousand. Or maybe I'll do a twenty minute tempo instead if I'm feeling I need to just run slower. During a taper, I put in a specific workout that has a specific purpose in prepping me for the race. How do you approach those two? Between a deload and a taper, that way. Yeah. Um, on a deload week, I typically keep my high quality Tuesday almost as is, but instead of running on Monday, I'm on the bike, and instead of running on Friday, I'm on the bike. So I take okay. two run days and I replace them with non-impact days and I'm not going hard on the bike. I'm, I'm going easy. So I'm pretty much doing time equivalent that I would be running and I just replace it with the bike. So that's two days I just eliminated from running and that alone itself is a deload. Yeah. Um, so I'll run a Tuesday quality day, may run Wednesday and Thursday, another Friday. At most I'm running, I run four days in my deload weeks at most. Sometimes I'll even back it off to three and fill the space. Now I'm a guy who knows my body reacts well to cross training. I think you know this as well. Mm -hmm. So I do okay. And that's enough to keep me moving. I still feel good about like my output. And if you're worried about, you know, getting chubby over, you know, deload week or any of those things, like I'm still working out, putting in almost the same amount of time other than my Saturday long run. My Saturday long run will be cut in half on on a deload week. So I'm replacing a few runs with, with bikes. I'm cutting my long run in half, but I'm keeping my Tuesday workout that week still big. That seems to work out for me just fine. Okay. Now, race week taper. Yes. A taper and a deload are pretty much the same thing, except that we usually think about deload where we just reduce down and that's it. Tapering, there is purpose for what happens at the end of it. Deload mm-hmm. just is a connector between your training block. It, it connects your last week to your next week with the ability to reduce fatigue. The taper sends you into something with purpose. In in my book, that's that that's my definition. Do you have a difference in opinion there? Nope, I don't at all. Uh, I think the the first part of the conversation you have to have is how long is a taper? When yep. should that taper start? Because here we talk about a deload week. We're talking about a week, and we're setting this period of time aside to simply just deload. But if we're talking about the taper, now it's like, oh, taper week. Is that really the right way to describe it? Is it taper week, Bracken? Or is it longer than that? Is it shorter than that? What does the taper actually like entail when you really break it down? People wonder that question all the time. They do. And they're right to do so because there is no right answer for that. A taper has some similar properties to peaking. You want to get like the best parts of peaking that you can get out of it while being really just a deload. Because you're not having this massive periodized build. You're just saying, with the work I've put in, what can I do to absorb the most of it and be ready to rock on race day? So I do a week. But for bigger races, I extend, instead of Monday through Friday taper race Saturday, I start mine the previous Saturday. So it's an entire week. So do I that Saturday before is changed based on the importance of the race. If Mm -hmm. it's a race that really matters and isn't super long, I get a pretty race specific workout. If it's a longer race, I take a shorter workout that Saturday, or I might just do an easy moderate long run, not a long, long run, but that medium distance. So Mike Ferguson, who is a mutual friend of ours and who I coached for a while, if I recall correctly, now it's been a few years, Mike, but I believe he liked a 12 to 14 day taper before all races. He liked his 10 to 12 day for sure. Yeah. Week and a half at least. He'd go hard through the Wednesday or Tuesday would be his last quality workout and he went race till the following Saturday. So that's like, uh, I don't know, 12 days. Yeah. 
And that's what I would do before like a world championship that I wasn't peaking for. <laughs> as odd as that sounds to have a world championship that you're not peaking for, but if it's not the focus of your season, but yeah. before a regular race, yeah, I, I typically do that five to seven day. I think a true taper, if it's a big race that you care about, uh, for me starts on the Saturday before, which is technically an eight day taper almost, if you really include mm -hmm. that Saturday. And that means on that Saturday, instead of a long run, I am shortening the duration and I'm actually increasing the intensity. So I'm doing more race specific work. Uh, I generally don't like to run steady the Saturday before a race. I find that I just need to do some shorter spicy stuff. So that will be Saturday with a significant decrease in volume, but I'll hit some intensity. And then I slowly build in my taper week. I will probably do a bike on Monday instead of a run. And then I'll go into that week slowly decreasing the general volume. Now, I like to hit my quality workout on race week, no matter what, if it is if it is uphill or flat, I go back and forth, but I like to hit something that will be more intense than race effort as far as pacing and as far as uh, sharpness of the sting to just give me some perspective on race day, making it more comfortable. So I will purposely run faster than race pace on my, on my taper week workout uh, to make sure that race day feels a little more comfortable. And, and those are, those are the two places I start the Saturday previous, and then that Tuesday or Wednesday of the race is always a little spicier. So I have that perspective come race day. Exactly. They're basically two schools of thought for the final quality session before your race. The first is it's your final chance to feel your race pace that you want the last taste in your mouth to be the taste you need on race day. So if you're a triathlete or a marathoner, you're working at your race pace for a, for a not crazy bouts, nothing that's going to leave you fatigued, but you just want to feel that correctly. And then there's a school of thought, which is you are going to do something short and spicy, faster than race pace, so that race pace itself feels comparatively easier. What we do know scientifically, that whether you're a high responder or a low responder, the number is 10 days, plus or minus two, whether you're a high or low responder, until you start to lose anaerobic fitness if you haven't trained it. So if you worked out the Wednesday before, that's basically 10 days until your Saturday. So you could do nothing all the way up until there and probably be fine, but you get it, you did a little something Saturday. And so as long as you do anything on Tuesday, you have not eroded fitness at all. So as a coach and as an athlete, my mindset on this is that it does not matter what you do Tuesday. All that matters is between your ears on that day. And so mm -hmm. I like to, I have three different workouts I've used in the last 10 years. That is my Tuesday before a race workout. Mm -hmm. But for athletes I work with, I like to say of all the workouts we've ever done, what is your favorite workout to do? the one that makes you feel the fastest and most ready to race. Because I'm going to script everything out up until that point. This is your day to say, what makes me feel like Superman or Superwoman? And that's mm -hmm. what we're doing that day. Because I truly don't believe you can change your fitness four days before a race. You can't. No, not possible. But you can change your headspace. Yes. You can arrive locked in. So what? how do you approach that? Do you have specific workouts that you think, do you believe like this helps people more? Or are you a headspace guy three days out? Uh, well, I guess I, I just wanted to touch on something where I didn't really, you just brought up and then it, it kind of reminded me to touch on it is really my last big day, turn myself inside out, hate my life effort comes Tuesday, the week before, mm -hmm. which is like that 12 week, that 12 day window. So I'm holding nothing back. That is, I guess, 12 days out, 11 days out, holding nothing back, 100% effort, aiming to really hurt. And then everything else is purposely just dialed back a notch. So I give myself permission for that Tuesday the week before to let it rip. And then everything else is a scaled back version in some capacity. So really, you would say my taper begins after that workout, which is like 10 days or 11 days out. As far as workouts go, I have basically versions of three, just like you. Mm -hmm. And depending, I've experimented. Sometimes I'll do them. They're all minute based in general. Um, some I have one that is distance based but I will do them on flat terrain or sometimes hilly terrain and go up the same principles. I'm never working longer than two minutes in general, hard the week of a race. And then the other philosophy that I've already touched on is something that is more intense pace wise or effort wise than the race is itself. Those are the principles I go on and I'm pretty steady with that. 
Now I have experimented with going back and forth between Tuesday and Wednesday, the week of a race. You see a lot of variants. If you watch uh, high-end level Strava uh, athlete Stravas, you'll see some athletes doing their last quality day on Tuesday. You'll see some doing their last quality day on Wednesday. I'm actually a Wednesday guy on race week only because I feel like it gives me one more day of recovery before that, uh, which seems to pay off better on race day than taking one extra day of recovery after my last quality day. And that could be a headspace thing. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly could be. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting to note, uh, and, and it, it builds off what we've been saying, is that if you take a look at, we talk about Nike has the four like the forefront of scientific knowledge and research behind what they do. When they did the breaking two project, they took the three athletes that they had primed of these were our three that we think we can do it. And there's a couple other athletes involved, but there were three main athletes. And one of them was the half marathon record holder who was the most efficient distance runner ever tested in a lab. The other was Elliot Kipchoge. And the other was a, I believe he was the bronze medal winner at the real marathon. So three world-class athletes, and they took a look at their training, they took a look at their nutrition, they took a look at their fueling, they took a look at everything they did, and they analyzed their peaking and their tapering. Mm. And they didn't change a thing in Eliud Kipchoge's training because he'd done it for so long at such a high level that he knew his body and he and his coach, they knew what they were doing. They said, we're not even going to touch it. We would train you how you're training. The other two guys, they tweaked a little bit. They recommended that Elliot Kipchoge change his taper by two days. Okay. His, his final taper in amongst his peaking block that he just tapered two days longer. And the other guys, they're like one guy, they thought, hey, you need to add an entire like five to seven days to your taper looking at the science, looking at his numbers in the lab testing they did. And the other guy they changed, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Those two guys both DNF'd and Elio Kipchoge did not and ran two flat 26. Wow. So what it goes to show is that there's a lot of science behind it. And if your headspace isn't right, it doesn't matter. They gave all three people like, hey, here's the numbers that say, this is your personalized taper. This is how long it needs to be. And two out of three didn't even finish the race. And one of them dropped off by the halfway point. So it just goes to show you need to be dialed in mentally. If your training is not perfect, but your mind is, you're going to outperform someone with perfect training and mental issues. Yes. And horses for courses, so to speak, with mm -hmm. not everybody's the same. There is definitely just a case in point with what you were outlining. There's just not a one size fits all when it comes no. to it. And man, I'll tell you what, I have experimented over the years countless times with this and had to have a lot of frustrating races intermixed with some good ones to understand what my body responds to well. And I'll tell you right now, and this is a topic we haven't really covered, is I respond well to the reverse taper. And what that really means is how, as far as I understand it, is that you are actually tapering or really deloading two weeks out from a race and then kind of jumping back into normal training the week of a race. As I had mentioned, like you might not feel your deload week that week. So like even by Saturday of your deload week, you're not feeling super fresh. I'm that guy. Like I do not feel well by the end of my deload week. I need more time than that. So I find the reverse taper, which is tapering as if I had a race the weekend before and then resuming like 80 to 90% of normal training on race week shows me the start line feeling better. And I initially followed common tapering principles, which was basically I trained the whole week prior like normal and then slowly decreased my volume and realized like that wasn't my cup. I can perform okay on that and sometimes pop one, but guaranteed the reverse taper for me works better. And that's interesting because I'm the opposite. Yeah. I, I race best, not Best, I should say, but I've had some of my best performances at last minute decisions to race where I've already done my Tuesday or Wednesday workout. And then on Thursday, it's like, hey, I'm going to book a flight and head out here and mm -hmm. just nail a race. I've done that, too. I, I consistently race better prior to a taper, not better, but race well. So I can do a taper, but sometimes it's too much time to think. And I seem to be an athlete who does well when I get sprung into a competition consistently well there. And when I have time to think about it, I have time for things to pop up. Hmm. There's, I mean, there's merit to that. I can't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't scientifically prove that I had more fitness coming into that. You couldn't because it didn't exist, but 
the unquantifiable headspace game was dialed in with the excitement of, oh, I'm going to race in two days. I'm booking a flight tonight, flying out tomorrow morning. Let's go do this thing. That 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 works for me. So again, it's very personal. And the closer you get to the race, the less of the details matter rather than just the principles of arrive mentally and physically rejuvenated. So what well, are your, th oh, go ahead. Well, no, the details do matter in the sense that the one thing you don't want to do is be fatigued, like truly fatigued Correct. going in. That's yeah. the one, that's the only detail that really matters. Yes. So my three workouts prior to a race that I've done for the last basically 10 years, I do one of three workouts. If I feel the need to be mentally sharp, I do OCR 400s. Okay, great. But instead of four rounds, I'll do three. Or instead of three rounds, I'll do two. Or I'll do, instead of four reps per round, I'll do a full three rounds, but I only do three 400s per round. Why don't we... Why don't we refresh people what that is? All right. <laughs> yeah. Exer exercise, 10 to 15 reps of an exercise, high intensity, 400 meters. 15 reps, 400 meters, 15 reps, 400 meters, 15 reps, 400 meters. It's one mile total, 400 meter run in between. And this is done fast. This is what I would consider race pace or faster. And it really hurts. But I do a lesser extent of it, either less reps or less rounds um, so that I do not arrive depleted. So if I need to hurt, if I just need to know what race pace will be like or race effort will be like, that's what I do. So that's number one. What's your number one? My number one is... I shouldn't say that's my number one choice. That's just my one of three. Well, one time I experimented with OCR work the week of a race and I had my worst race in the US National Series. <laughs> Granted, I went to Utah and it was at elevation and you know how we are when we live at sea level, we're kind of set up to fail slightly. So I don't know if it was a great experiment. However, um, my general go-to is four by two minutes hard, four by one minute hard, all with one minute jog recovery or rest. I can do that uphill or flat. And that's only 12 minutes of work, <laughs> which is not much, but that would be a tapering week workout. I also like a workout where I do 800 meters, 60 seconds rest. 400 meters, 90 seconds rest. And I repeat that times four. Now that's a little more work, but, um, and then if I'm really feeling sluggish, I do the same principles with one minute and 30 seconds or 400 meters and 200 meters. And that's just, but that's just, you know, I'm oozing what I had said about, I need shorter, faster stuff yeah. the week of a race. So I'm my max effort in duration is either 800 meters or two minutes. For me, that's two and a half minutes or less. And so, so that's what I stick to. My other two are, are very similar to those. One yeah. is that I will do 60, 60 or 30, 30. Yeah. Okay. Same. Yeah. I will do it for about half the normal rounds I would do half to two thirds. So if I would normally do 24 by 30 second on 30 second off or 20 by that, I'll do 10 to 12 and maybe up to 15 if I'm going to do it Tuesday rather than Wednesday. And if I'm doing 60, 60, I do six rounds. Yeah, Maybe eight if I'm doing it Tuesday instead of Wednesday, but generally not. And then the final workout that I really like is fartlek style. One, one, two, two, three, three. So one minute hard, one easy, two hard, two easy, three hard, three easy. You don't right. comment back. No, 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 no. Let me say that. One, two, three, hard, always one minute easy in between. So one hard, one easy, two hard, one easy, three hard, one easy, up, down. And then I might go up again. So not a lot of work, but just shifting gears, feeling speed. And that's the one I feel the best during. Yeah. OCR 400s, I feel the strongest coming out of. Nice. And 60-60 is the one I do when I'm on a treadmill at the hotel when I'm traveling and I don't know where else I want to go do a workout. I find myself gravitating more and more towards time-based intervals the week of a race because I don't want pacing to get into my head. Yep. If for some reason I'm still just a little fatigued and I know I'll pop for race day, but I'm still a little fatigued, you know, that, that quality workout prior. So I've been shifting more and more to the time-based stuff. And that seems to just, it like, it checks that box off of like, okay, I won't be in a head space because my splits were off. And I like that. So Time-based, a lot of times I won't even check my pacing on those. In fact, I won't even start a new lap or a new interval on my watch. I'll just let the clock roll. And that way I don't even know what my real pacing was for that because I won't have a true interval split for it. Um, but I mean, whatever feels right to you. But I think the theme you're hearing here is like three-minute time cap at most. 
and all this stuff is going to be is faster, faster than race pace. Like that seems yeah. pretty consistent between us two. Yeah. I, and I think it's probably our track background that we like doing something faster than race pace and we like doing something interval based and we've gotten away from our track background and that we're not timing 200s or 400s anymore. We're doing by feel so that we don't need to worry about pacing. Yeah. I mean, in college when we'd be racing like a 1500 meter, I mean, a, a true taper or a peaking workout would be like three by 600. That's it. We yep. did three by 600 meters for a workout. With like five minutes rest in between. With like three, I think we took okay. or something. But a lot of rest considering we normally would be doing that with 60 seconds or less. And and we all performed pretty damn well. I was an All-American my first year in track off of that workout. And that was the only hard workout I did the week of track nationals was three by 600 meters. And then the day before the race, we did two by 200 just to make sure our legs were turning over. That was it. And I think I peaked wonderfully. So it doesn't take much. It just takes a little stimulus. Yeah. Now a classic taper week or, you know, leading up to a race week, the classic, when you look at high level athletes, they'll do something hard Tuesday, Wednesday recovery. And then on Thursday, they'll do some pickups or something light during a run. They'll either do that Thursday or Friday. Uh, do you remember Pat Klein at UW Platteville? I don't. I think he was after my time. He was, but he was a, he was a monster. And he, the day before nationals was on the track where everyone's doing their jog and a few strides. And he did something like six by 400 at 62, 64. The day before? Yep. Day before. Now that's more aggressive and more volume than what normally happens. But there are people and a lot of Olympians who two days before are doing some interval work, nothing crazy, but that's pretty typical. And I believe that's what the Atkinses do as well. They do Tuesday, Thursday, race day. And the Thursday is not a hard effort, but it's short and quick. You know, I wanted to ask Ryan Kent this when we interviewed him and I forgot. And on a previous podcast I'd heard with him, he had mentioned that he liked to do 200 meter repeats the day before a race. Have you heard him say that before? Yeah, we, we've talked about that. Yeah, that was a formula that he had down. For some reason, he'd go do like eight by 200 meter repeats and then feel really good the next day. I don't know if he's kept that up. You would probably know better than I would. But that was a thing he did, and he felt like that faster than race pace the day before, stoked the fire, got his body used to running fast, and then he could go run nice and relaxed on race day. He found it in training. He noticed that he had this consistent trend in his log that after a certain type of short interval workouts, he felt so fast the next day when he went to go out for a run. Effortless. Uh -huh. And one day at a, at a smaller race, he's like, man, screw it. I'm just going to try it. I'm going to do 8 or 10 by 200 hard tonight. And he did it and he had a great race the next day. And he's like, all right, I don't care what anyone else does or says. I know this to be true for my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his taper looks like his last heavy lift is Monday or Tuesday each week. He, I think it's Monday. And then he, does he still rip out those 200s on, on Fridays? Is that more often than not? He does. Yeah. Yeah. So I get God, like, I think that just, that just preaches the subjectivity of this. We only know off of our own experiences, what works. I will say that on a shakeout run the day before a race instead of tapered, I will do some sprints or strides of maybe 15 seconds at most. Maybe that accomplishes the same thing. I'm not extending it out further though. What I used to do, and I, I got away from it and I don't know why, but I used to feel so terrible the day before a race that it was stressful to go on my run. It was just like this monster chore that had to be done. I do 16 by 100. I do uh, like a, eight minute warm up and eight minute cool down. And I do 16 by 100 at like mile pace with just slow, 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 10 minute jog back. Hmm. Just, just to get structure to my workout. So I didn't spend the entire time thinking oh, I have 20 minutes left and I feel so terrible and it's so hot and there's no way I'm going to be able to race tomorrow. And so it was no quality, but it was just, it just broke it up. So I, I like there that. might be something to that. I might play around a little more with that this coming up here. Uh, my hope is to maybe run a few more races that don't matter as much mm -hmm. for the love of sport. And uh, maybe there'll be some time to experiment on that. But but again, for me, if I'm just going to break down my taper, um, and I encourage you guys to try the reverse taper. How many of you take a deload week and then feel really good that whole next training week? That really is a reverse taper, and, and it's in a version of it. So. I would, I would push people to experiment with that right now if they have a curiosity about the reverse taper. It doesn't sound like it's for you, but I'm talking before big races as well, Bracken. Like I'm not saying it's not for me because I haven't tried it. 
Well, you're saying, oh, I found a race and two days later, I'm going to go run it. Like that happens. But for the big races that you care about, you have those planned ahead. For sure. And so you have to have some sort of strategy going into them. I've always been the athlete that races well in the third stage of training when you're hitting all your quality workouts before you've started trying to peak. And so that lends itself to racing off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you have, did you have any big races that you ever jumped into last minute that you can attest to that that worked? I don't know how big the races were, but I've had some big performances. So the fastest mile I've run post collegiately was 420. And I ran that on the road in Madison. Hmm. State, State Street Mile? State Street Mile. It's a good race. And I I ran really, I ran a good race. I felt like crap for the first half of it, but just like kept hanging around and was able to close it down. And I had run, for me, 65 miles that week, which was a lot for me. And I had done two quality workouts and then I'd been roofing. And that's always in July, I think. Yeah, midsummer. Yeah. And I'd been roofing in Wisconsin in the summer, which is, you know, upper 80s, lower 90s in humidity. And the day before we'd roofed all day with my dad. And then that morning I had roofed. And then at like 1030 or 11, I said, you know what I kind of want to do it. He said, go do it. I ran inside. I showered. I drove up to Madison, got like a 25 minute warm up and ran 420. That's awesome. Isn't that, a, isn't that an evening race? No, it was afternoon. It was like 1 p.m. or something. Oh, yeah. Two day. Okay. So it, it was, I felt bad. And then I just performed uh, in, interesting story about that one where there's this goofy looking guy. He was probably six, two, six, three lanky, goofy stride, just looked disjointed running with our pack. And with 600 meters to go, I moved into second behind him. And with 400 to go, suddenly we were alone. We had dropped everyone else and he still looked awkward running. I thought that's the stride of someone who can't kick. So when we get to 300, I'm going to blow his doors off so obnoxiously that he's not ever going to respond to it. And at 300 to go, I went by him with everything I had, like head full of steam, thinking I'd just smash this guy. And maybe two or three seconds later, he just strode up next to me and kind of just looked down at me, curious, <laughs> just no animosity, just with curiosity. And then he moved away from me and he didn't look goofy anymore. Suddenly he looked smooth and easy, like a normal stride. And I realized... <laughs> He looked bad because he was jogging <laughs> and he beat me by maybe eight seconds in the last 200. And he, it, turned out it, it was Luke Rux. He had run uh 359 in the mile indoor that year. And he had run 147 in the 800 and he was coming off his senior year of college uh, running for UW Wisconsin. You didn't have a chance. The only chance I'd ever had was to hide behind him until one meter left in the race and try to sneak past him. If he didn't know I was there <laughs> that I just, Woke him up with 280 meters to go and he destroyed me. That's funny and humbling. We need that once in a while. Oh yeah. It was, it was a reminder that there are levels to this thing. And I got done blown up, like unable to talk, unable to stand up. He walked up, handed me a cup of water, kind of like patted me on the head and went over and just started having full conversations with people. Uh, he didn't, he, he's like, you had no idea what you were getting yourself into, son. That's yeah. what he thought in his head about you. A for effort though. A for aggressive and A for effort. Yeah. So 420 off of two quality workouts, high mileage and roofing was probably the best I ran performance wise, but I won Atlas race the week after the world championships at Killington, which I had DNF'd in out of cramps. Couldn't mm -hmm. walk until Wednesday, normally downstairs. Thursday morning, did a shakeout, felt good, called in sick to work Friday, took a flight out to Atlas and won the biggest prize check I ever won. Uh, beat Max King in his OCR debut. Uh, Nice. Uh, there's a couple decent runners, but most were recovering from, from Killington. So that was probably the biggest race I ever won off a, on a whim. Well, I think the whim thing, there's something to that. Um, earlier this year, I had, I had done a 17 mile training run with like 4,000 feet of vert on a Saturday and hit it hard. And I woke up Monday morning and that's two days later, highly not recommended and said, it's a really nice calm day out. I'm going to go 5k time trial. And I made that decision Literally in 15 minutes from the time I said, I think I'll do this to the time I was on my feet running it was a 15 minute heads up and there's no time to get in your own head. There's no time to worry about headspace. There's no time to overthink your fitness or where you're at. You just go out, put your head down and work hard. And there's like some, there's some like testament to that. I felt that when I did my 5k time trial and I had a good one. I remember that you said, am I foolish for thinking about doing this? I said, yeah. Rip it up. And you went through at like 508 or something, first mile, feeling comfortable. 
Yeah, yeah, it worked out all right. Should we, um, enough about us, should we work on to the peaking aspect of things then real quick? Yeah. Yeah, so again, peaking is the confluence of two factors. As you are training, you have your performance stats and you have your, your fatigue. And the relationship between those two equals fitness. So your fitness isn't necessarily high if you're in great shape, if your fatigue's very high as well. Mm -hmm. Like you have great tangibles, you have great skills, but you can't access it all because you're so tired. So as your fitness peaks, that means that your performance numbers are as high as they can get with its with your fatigue at the lowest that it can get. Mm -hmm. If you got any lower, your fitness would go down because your performance starts going down. It's a very narrow window. And it that's is. the tough thing about a peak. I'm talking like you got like a week to work with or less. Yeah. In a peaking phase. Yeah. You can peak for three to four weeks, but your true peak is going to be a seven to 10 day window inside of that bigger window. Correct. Now, it matters more when time matters more on the mm -hmm. track, on the roads, in the pool, on a bike. In our sport, time gaps are so big that you don't have to nail your peak week. You need to nail your window. Well, and you can be a little early on your peak and your race happens a little before or your race happens a little after. But if you do actually work and hit your peak, both sides of that peak are still going to provide you a really nice race. Yes. You know, you don't have to be right at the pinnacle of the peak. You can be just before or just afterwards. And the hard part is sometimes you don't really know you're in the peak until it's done. You look back and you say, ah, that's where it was because you don't know how good it's going to get. And then you realize that's already passed and you're like, yep, I'm on my way down. So you're exactly right. If you want to hit the, the epitome of time and speed, you want to hit that at the very crest of the peak. But really, there's a little forgiveness about talking about like a, you like a three week peaking period where you're going to generally perform almost your best at any time you get out there and race. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 probably the hardest, even more so than the taper. The true peak is like the cloudiest, even still for me mm -hmm. um, to nail. And sometimes I've done it in training, not on purpose. And then in hindsight, been like, dang, I was ripping for three weeks. And now I'm I'm back to feeling slower and sluggish and fatigued every day. It's a very confusing thing. Have you ever have you ever peaked in hindsight and been like, shit, I think I peaked myself too early? Because I have. There was one time, and I don't know if I was peaked or if I was at the limit of where I could take my training that that block without needing to to deload and rebuild a little bit. But there was one spring out in Colorado where I I got to the point where I thought, I just don't know how much longer I can be mm -hmm. like this for. I haven't peaked, but I've been working hard. I've been nailing workouts. I've been building volume. Everything's clicking. I feel like I could race anyone in the universe right now and have at least a puncher's chance against them. But I, I don't think I can sustain this trajectory for another month maybe another week or two and then i'm going to have something's going to have to change so i think that's the only time i've unintentionally done it that's how i will feel when i realize i am about to or have to that it's not sustainable for that much longer and that would be a good way to good way to feel that out and by sustainable i mean like how fast i'm running not necessarily my volume not necessarily time on feet but like man, I am just rocket shipping every single workout right now. And there's just no way that I think this is going to, it's going to catch up with me is how I, how I, how I feel. And so I've been there. So that's kind of, you're kind of describing the same way I actually would feel when that's happened. Mm -hmm. So marathoning is when people think about peaking the most in our realm, because most of people in the running public aren't track racers. That's generally a young person's sport. There are people who do master's track, but marathoning is when people think about, I need to peak for my fall marathon. I'm going to run Boston or Chicago. I want to peak for that. And that is when people get into trouble because you have this great big build and then you get to peaking and a lot of people flounder. And you do your first time, you flounder, but you stick to one of the tried and true methods, which is a two-week taper. Mm-hmm. You taper into your peak, so you hit your volume build, you hit the maximum volume that you'll be able to sustain, then you sustain it with the best workouts you can do, and then you sharpen up, reduce your load for two weeks, and boom, you should have a good race. Now, if you arrive there feeling super fatigued, then you probably raced a week early. 
And if you arrive feeling like I was better last week, you arrived a week late and you use that for your next round to dial it in. Yep. I found that out last year. So I am a three week to peak gentleman and I always will be. And and I've realized that a couple of times. And last year in West Virginia, I did my last long effort of three hours with some heavy de- descending two weeks before West Virginia. I still showed up for that race when I got into the meat of that race. I ran a smart race. I took eighth place. I was happy at the North American Championships with that. But I ran that on the flattest legs I've run on in a long time. And that made me extra proud of that effort. Moving forward to Tahoe, I did my last three-hour long run three weeks out and extended my peaking or tapering process three weeks. And I showed up ready to go. Two weeks out, two weeks uh, after that uh, three-hour long run. So my last somewhat long run before Tahoe, I had a sluggish day. I remember thinking, damn, am I glad that I learned this now. And then when Tahoe came around, it was three full weeks after my last long, big effort. My body was recovered, adapted, and ready to peak. And in between all of that started the more intense, shorter peaking workouts, slowly reducing volume. So I think I think a peak can start as long as three weeks out, maybe even longer for some people. Yeah. Yeah. And you took eighth at the North American Championships and then 11th, correct, at the World Championships. Yeah, correct. So you added in all the other continents and only three additional people beat you. Yeah, John Albin, Albert Soley, and who the heck else? I don't know. A bunch of guys that didn't show up. Ian. Ian, Ian Hosek didn't go run there. Tyler Veerman didn't run. Yeah. Johnny Luna Lima didn't run in West Virginia. So technically, you beat more people. I beat way more people because I got it right. I figured it out. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, that goes to show the power of, of doing that. Now, I want to read off for you. Elliot Kipchoge, again, the greatest marathoner this planet has ever seen, his volume leading up to his world record in Berlin at the marathon. Okay. Five weeks out, 118 miles. Four weeks out, 110 miles. Three weeks out, 119 miles. Two weeks out, 110 miles. One week out, 113 miles. That's a seven-day taper. That is the greatest marathoner on the planet one week out, seven days out from his race, maybe eight if Berlin was on a Sunday, he ran 113 miles, which was basically his average for the previous five weeks. The week of the race, that's what he ran. No, one week prior. So it ended Sunday, seven days before race day. And what did he run race week? God, I would die to know. Does it say I, that? I, I would guess he dropped down to 70 or 80. Including the race? Uh, yeah. That is insane. And that goes to show and that this is the guy who Nike said they wouldn't change a thing about his training other than adding two more days to his taper. And he's the one who finished that marathon. Yep. And, and then this one, he set the world record. So that, again, goes to show that it doesn't matter what the general consensus is. It's finding what works for you personally. I agree with that. You also do not know what the intensity, uh, what those mo- miles we do, are. Actually, we have his. He was running 5K and 10K interval workouts and long, like uh, 20 to 30K tempos all those weeks. So all those weeks he was putting in the same volume and intensity. He wasn't running a more easy miles or anything. Uh, in between, well, he always runs easy in between. He might've been even more easy in between, but he got a, he generally works out around 10 K pace and he added maybe a little bit more 5 K pace in the last couple of weeks, but he hit intensity and volume until seven days prior to breaking the marathon world record intentionally. I don't, I don't think that, that we're going to recommend that Bracken. No, (laughs) it's something that I would recommend playing with in your builds. Before time trials, try different lengths of coming and rested because clearly that end of the spectrum works for him and the three to five week end of the spectrum works for other people. We're all going to fall somewhere on there and two week taper or peaking does not mean that it's going to work for everyone, even if it's most common. Yeah. Well, if we're talking peaking though, you know, we're talking about reducing fatigue as much as possible and having time for our training to catch up so our fitness peaks while our fatigue is low. And so when it comes to that process, like those are two like ships passing in the night that you need to somehow pass in the night at the same time in the same place. And so it can't look the same for everybody. There's too many variables. So what it means is understanding your training's effect on your body. So to go back to Elliot, 
This is a man who at 18 won his first world championship on the track. He was a world champion at 18 and he is now, I don't know, 36. I think so. Somewhere mid thirties. Yeah. Let's assume he only ran for three years before winning his world championship or let's, let's call it two years. That's 20 years of world-class training. And he's famous for saying, I run my workouts at 80 to 90% mm -hmm. because he doesn't go to the well very often. He saves those for special moments. So he doesn't carry an incredibly high level of fatigue and stress in his body. And so if peaking requires maintaining your highest possible speed with your lowest possible fatigue, it probably doesn't take him too long to recover from things. He doubles every single day. He runs high mileage year round. He's used to these different stimulus. So he can mm -hmm. back away and absorb it really, really quickly. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about. Why don't we talk about both of us specifically, I guess, real quick. And I know you're in a limited window, so we're going to have to wrap this up here shortly. Um, myself, I mentioned, um, just for you know the opposite end of the spectrum, I take three weeks. Granted, I'm probably, I'm probably emptying my tank in workouts like I'm, you know, Elliot says he works at 80% while well, I'm working at a hundred <laughs> throughout, you know, so there's a difference there and maybe there's some merit to what the guy is doing and we should consider, you yeah, know, runs 100 to 120 so he can get additional benefits from that. Yeah, that's he fair. I go to the well, but I will be slowly reducing volume and the length of my long runs through a three week process. And as I'm reducing that, I will increase the speed intensity and rest on my interval and high quality sessions. So that will mean shorter interval work with more rest, allowing me to run faster. And it usually doesn't break me down or fatigue me as much either. So I will take more recovery, shorter reps generally, and a gradual decrease in my overall volume as I approach the race. That formula seems to work for me. I know it's a kind of a tried and true general method. I just feel like I need to start mine maybe a week out for most people. Um, and all the same principles apply as the taper. I will hit a quality workout a week out from the race and then really back off the race week. Um, and it all seems to generally work out. I've done that twice now, the three-week peaking taper, and it's worked two out of two times for me to show up and feel good. So I think I'm on to something there. Um, but again, it's just a slow reduction in volume. You're nicking that long, that long run. You do not need to do another long run after three weeks out. Physiologically, you literally do not. Um and increasing intensity along the way. So that's that's where I'm at with mine. What about you? I like to hold my form and workouts longer, uh, especially mm -hmm. in our sport where we're not doing anything much faster than 5K pace in a race. If I were running track again, then I do that exact thing. I shorten my reps, I increase my speed, and I lengthen my recovery, but I keep them on the same days and I lower my overall yeah. volume. In yeah. this sport, I keep my workouts pretty much as is. I lower my overall volume. If I'm running 60 mile weeks, two weeks out from the race or one week out from the race. So the week before the race, I will drop it down to maybe 40 miles, 40 to 45. And then week of, I'll drop it again down to like 30. Yeah. So I'm reducing everything by 20 to 25%. And then another 20% the week of the race. And I'm hitting the final progression of my workout that Wednesday prior. So 10 days out is the final progression of a workout I've done all the way through. So I haven't changed the interval, the, the distance, the rest, or the intensity. I've just extended that all the way through because for me, my name of the game is speed extension. Mm -hmm. I can run plenty fast in a mile to win Spartan Worlds. I can't maintain it for even half the distance of Spartan Worlds. So that's, that's the name of my game. So it's extending it until the last possible minute. And then Saturday, Tuesday are my kind of deload intensity workouts where I do what you do. They're not that far off. No, we just, our timetable is five to seven days longer for you and shorter for me. And you know what? When I was younger, it was shorter, but I'm not younger anymore. I could, I could do the week. I could do two weeks and pull it off, but we're talking, there's a no tomorrow end of season race that you're peaking one time for. You don't give a shit what happens after. Cause you're probably going to take a week or two off anyways, and then start a build for your next big season. Like it's the no tomorrow race peak is the three full weeks. And that's just been more necessary in, in my later years, I would say. But um, the last thing I want to touch on with peaking or tapering is the biggest mystery for people is those last two days. 
like the Thursday and Friday before a race, you always get the question, should I take off? Should I work out? Should I run the day before? Should I not? What's your recommendation, Bracken? If you have to take an off day, take it Wednesday or Thursday. That's my recommendation. You have to, if you have to take an extra one, I like it to be Thursday. But even then, I like doing a scheduled strides day where I do my full race warm up minus the running. So all my dynamics, all my mobility, and then I'll do six to eight hard strides and then I'll cool down. On Thursday. If instead of an off day, that will be like, if I have a terrible travel day, that's my workout. I don't want a full off day. I'm not running really. I'm doing four minutes worth of running that day, but it takes me through all my motions and I do something. But yeah, if you have to take an extra day off, maybe get a Thursday. Otherwise I like to reduce and keep the normal schedule. It keeps you sane and your body knows it's routine. Mm -hmm. I'm Wednesday or Thursday off as well, without question. Uh, one of those days will be off for me, depending on where I'm at with my training and when I feel it makes the most sense. Um, man, the misconception of taking Friday off before a race to rest up just really makes the hair stand up on my neck, man. It just really does. It's not correct unless your fitness is poor enough where you don't think you can run two days in a row. Exactly. Otherwise, you need to be running the day before a race. Most of the time you're traveling. Uh, you're in an airplane or you're in a car. You're all tight and bunched up for hours on end, and then you don't loosen that up and give your body a fighting chance to really prep for the next day. You got to just spin the wheels a little bit. Make sure the systems check is going on. Run easy. That's fine. Loosen up all that fascia. Make sure those muscles have a chance to elongate and just get the body just ready for what's to come tomorrow. It will not detriment your performance. Two miles is better than no miles in that case. It will not tire you out for your race. It will only help. Even if it's at five or six o'clock at night because you fly in late. I've done a ton of shakeout runs between six and 8 p.m. And I've had great races 12 hours later. Yeah, you definitely do that. I can't tell you how many times I'm getting back hotel at 9 p.m. after doing 20 minutes and four strides. Mm -hmm. However, when I'm not in shape or if I'm working with someone who's not in shape, worst case scenario, you're getting on the hotel elliptical or spin bike for 10 to 20 minutes, worst case scenario, and then doing two to three strides outside. You have to shake the legs out. And I believe in the power of doing a stride or three or four the night before, if you had a ton of travel, to just make sure you've knocked the rust off that pathway. Make sure that biomechanically you are moving in the right trajectory, the right way, mm -hmm. so that the next day there's no surprises. Yep, 100%. I follow that same tune. I just think, I think the only thing I just wanted to make sure to, to get across is the running before the day, yeah. the day before a race. It's just very, very important. You'll notice a big difference. And the final piece to this is that you don't do anything crazy with hydration or food race week. There are people who dilute their electrolyte balance in their body by just chugging gallons of water the day before a race. Mm -hmm. That's just not intelligent. You, We've talked about it before on here. You, ha If you're going to be upping your hydration in preparation for a race, you have to also up your electrolyte intake. Your sodium intake in particular. Yep. Um, and it's not as hard to be hydrated guys as people think it is. Like as long as you've been doing a decent job every day, you're not in a debt. You don't need to, you don't, you can't like super saturate hydration. Once you're full, you're full. And once you're full and you keep adding on to it, then you're just diluting electrolytes. And that does you negative. Like, yes, you need to drink, but you shouldn't have to be running to the bathroom once an hour all day because you're drinking so much. That would be counterproductive. A normal drinking schedule, as long as you're not going into it dehydrated and a taper is not going to allow you to get dehydrated. In my opinion, I think the over drinking does more harm than good. And they've shown that it takes more dehydration than they used to think during a race before you start seeing performance decline. It's incredible. It's like you'd have to lose like, let's say you're a 150 pound athlete. You'd have to lose like six to eight pounds of water weight before it even starts to negatively impact your performance. It's so profound. The amount of uh, like dehydration you have to experience before it really negatively impacts performance. So we are not saying don't hydrate, but don't do no. anything foolish. Nothing again, you have to test out in training. If you can work out well off of your normal routine with a little bit extra water and a little extra hydration and or electrolyte and a little extra sleep, that's all you have to do on race week. I, I think the key is little. You said a little. Yes. A little more. Not like, oh, it's race day. I got to drink three gallons of water today and I'm not thirsty and I'm going to be chugging them down the hatch because I'm supposed to. Like that's that's a mistake in my, my eyes. I start a little earlier in the morning and I drink one extra glass before I go to bed.
That's enough. That's enough to saturate you up. Yep. And I purposely eat more sodium the day before to make sure that water stays in me. And, or before I do that before long efforts or when it's hot and I know I have a hot effort the next day, seems to do really nice. Don't avoid sodium the day before a race. That can only help you. So. All right. My call to action is get out there and research this. There are a lot of scholarly articles out there and a lot of anecdotal stories about how to do this. Research it like anything else. Take the things that kind of speak to you and test them out in training. And then on top of that, guys, it looks like Hunter's race registration is open. From what I saw, he has his Instagram account open now. The post said that you should go and sign up. So go and sign up. Let's support this community. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you.